0: Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is a result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment, and other life and work-based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions i bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people, and organizations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise as well as my own synthesis of the key issues strategies tips tools and resources to thrive in life if you find this podcast useful why not go over to our site qedod.com if you'd like some resources on how to manage beat burnout head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook enjoy the podcast So today I'm talking to Sally Spencer Thomas. Now um, for those of you who are really exceptionally gifted you'll realise that actually I've talked to Sally before and um, I was so um, taken with the conversation we had and her wisdom and insights around the whole sort of concept of suicide and such like. We um, chatted a lot about uh, male suicide and suicide generally but um, she did sort of Talk to us a little bit a little bit about this idea of workplace suicide and workplace um, signs and signals and such like. And um, she's been very active in that area for many, many years. and she's very kindly offered to come back and talk to us again, really all about that subject. So hi
1: again, Sally. Well, hello again, hello again. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me back on your show.
0: So for those of you who didn't hear the last podcast, which of course is um, extraordinarily rude, but they, those are the who didn't hear first time, right? <laughs> um, just remind us uh, of uh, who you are and what you do and how you describe what you do.
1: Sure, thanks. Um, so I'm a psychologist by training, but my heart is really more of an impact entrepreneur. So I like to um, start up fairly large-scale initiatives and get them going, especially in places where it's pretty disruptive or innovative, and then when it gets up and running and it gets really complicated, I hand it over to people who are much better at long-term sustainability. Um, so I'd like to, to look at the world of suicide prevention through the lens of what are we missing, where are the gaps, where are the holes, and how we can go in and, and, and do something bold in that space. And the reason I got into this is that uh, after 16 years in the, in the work of mental health, mostly as a counselor, um, a little bit as a um, educator, my brother died by suicide in 2004. And so that got me really focused on suicide prevention. And at the time that he died, I was actually running a leadership program at a university. And so the bridging the ideas of suicide prevention And leadership and systems changed were kind of front and center for me for a number of years. And so that's really where I've settled. And one of the very big aha moments I had early on in this journey was that the workplaces were not engaged in this conversation at all. Mm. And if you thought about it, the workplaces were the most cross-cutting system we had for engaging people who might be at risk for suicide. Everybody who worked, everybody who dies by suicide was working, they were just working, or they have a first degree family member or a very close friend who's working. So that's, that's a very large cross-cutting system that has a lot of potential to save lives and alleviate despair.
0: So are you saying that um, a person's workplace can impact on someone who is suicidal or could be a cause of suicide in the first place?
1: Both, absolutely both. So, and this is not a new concept, it's just one we forgot. Um, if we look, you know, a century or so ago, Durkheim was talking about this very early on in our ideas about drivers of suicidal despair and also potential um, contributors to suicide prevention. And he, back in the day, very articulately outlined the fact that work is a social structure that gives people meaning and connection. It's a big, big, big part of our lives and how we define ourselves in the world. Um, And when it goes awry, people suffer. So he was talking about this a long time ago. In our more current ideas of suicide, we've really medicalized the issue and we've made it all about the consequences of mental illness. And I am not downplaying the fact that mental health conditions play a role in suicide. It's just not the only story there's a lot of other things that contribute. And one of them is very toxic workplace conditions. So that's, that's where we're focusing on now. It's not good enough just to get, you know, quote unquote, troubled workers to counseling. We also have to look at the environment and how that is participating and shaping a role in either helping or hurting someone who might be vulnerable. So you, do, so you use the word toxic workplace. What, what, mm. what, does, what does that really mean? Well, there's a lot of different things that can contribute. Um, we just launched a, uh, in the United States, the National Guidelines for Workplace Suicide Prevention on World Mental Health Day, October 10th, uh, just this past year. And in in putting that together, we interviewed a number of uh, very diverse stakeholders. We had people who were in human resources and employer employment law folks and people involved in risk management and safety. We had all kinds of C-suite people, CFOs and CEOs, and we also had scores of people who had lived experience, people who had their suicide crisis, either a death or an attempt or a family member who had an experience while they were working. Um, We also dove into all the literature, all the science that we could get our hands on related to how workplaces can either help or hurt. And one of the things that we found was a meta-analysis and systemic review that looked at all kinds of what we call psychosocial hazards that can increase vulnerability to the range of suicide behavior. So that being suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, and suicide death. And there's probably two dozen, two dozen things that happen in a a workplace that can contribute to this vulnerability. So it's things like there's a cluster of, of variables that are things like, job control, job variability, job security. All right. So if you, if you feel like a, a, just a cog in the wheel uh, of the grind and somebody else is getting the profit, uh, it's really hard to stay connected to that, feel that it's meaningful. So that's one cluster of things. Another cluster of, of variables is, are things like hazing and bullying and harassment and discrimination and prejudice where your environment is really um, assaulting you, basically, and marginalizing you. Um, you know, some of the biggest factors we know for suicide prevention are a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. So if you have workmates or a culture uh, around this you know, bullying, hazing, harassment, it's, it's very, very damaging. Um, another cluster of variables is really around work and family integration. So when you have family stressors, like a, a dying elder, um, a, a health condition of someone in your immediate family, um, you know some kind of traumatic thing happening or divorce, uh, how do you get supported through those life transitions and life hardships at work matter? And then vice versa. If you're having really stressful things at work, how is that spilling over into your life? We've got a lot of industries that work 24-7, a lot of industries that have their workers traveling, and that puts a huge strain on the family. Um, So there's all these different clusters. Um, Probably the one that I always like to bring up the most (laughs) is sleep disruption. We've got a number of different work situations that are constantly disrupting quality sleep for people. And we have such clear evidence that quality sleep is tied to whole bunches of uh, health outcomes, but it's also tied to safety outcomes and directly associated with suicide. So helping workers get sleep sometimes requires some creativity, especially again if we have a 24-hour schedule that we need to keep things going. Um, but it's so important, not only to the individual workers' well-being, but actually to the safety, you know, especially in things like first responder and construction and healthcare, you know, the safety of the whole system. So those are just a few. So so
0: you've talked. So there's some aspects there about social exclusion
1: mm-hmm. and um and
0: you talked theres about some aspects of burnout mm-hmm. um, and you've talked about actually um some sort of uh associated um areas outside of work which impact within work and become exacerbated in a way but but you're also talking about people who are more prone to suicidal thoughts and who are a lot more likely to be suicidal. You're not implying that that the normal conditions of work can affect someone without those situations that make them suicidal, are you?
1: Yeah. No, I am. <laughs> you know, if you, if you are doing well uh, and you go to work and you are bullied and hazed and discriminated against and they're asking you to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week and you can't sleep, And uh, it's a a grind of a job with no reward, and you're really hard. Yes, I'm saying that work can drive people to suicide. Um, In fact, there is a big case going on right now. Uh, It just broke. uh, Well, it's been breaking for a long time. It's been ongoing for a long time. But the the verdict just came through in December, um, where the employers were held responsible for creating a toxic work environment. Um, it was France Telcon, and they uh, over the in, in the middle of the last decade they had I think somewhere around twenty seven to thirty some odd suicide deaths as they were downsizing there 's all kinds of documentation that showed that the leadership was intentionally making the workplace um, very very toxic in hopes that people would leave voluntarily. so they were taking these really high level engineers who previously loved their work and putting them in really degrading situations uh, in customer service where they had to like ask to go to the bathroom and all kinds of um, really harsh working conditions where they were separating them from their families and degrading them all the time. And in the suicide notes of the folks that took their lives during this period of time, they accused the workplace for, driving them to suicidal despair. And, and some of them actually took their lives on the work site as a, as a form of protest. Now, it's been years later that the families brought this lawsuit to this company, um, but the, the leaders were held on trial over the summer, and uh, it does look like they will be held accountable based on uh, what I was reading in December. So that's a pretty unprecedented case that a workplace was held responsible for an outcome like suicide.
0: Wow. I, I'm, I'm quite staggered, really, actually. Um, because, of, because often you'll see organizations hiring people like me to come in and talk about how to negate burnout and build resilience and all those sorts of things. But um, and, and they help. But in a way, they are really the organization sort of abdicating responsibility for... That's
1: exactly it.
0: ...for their own poor processes. And actually, part of building anyone's resilience is to look at the organizational culture and process in the first place. Would you... So is are there other things you can do to, I mean, it sounds obvious, but I mean, other obvious things, other things, simple things you can do, sorry, to, um, to prevent having a toxic workplace?
1: Yeah. So I'm so glad we're talking about this because it is a, it's a nuanced thing, but it's a really important point. You know, all of the workplaces getting on board right now with workplace mental health is amazing. It's exciting. You know, they're breaking down barriers and they're, bringing in this conversation into a place where this conversation hasn't had before. They're looking at their um, employee assistance uh, programs and the resources that they can use to help families. And all of that is tremendous. And also, it deflects away all of that, that sole focus to flex away on what are we doing that might be contributing to these problems. Yeah. So it's a both and it's not an either or, uh, I wouldn't say stop doing that other work. I'm just saying, let's also look in the mirror and say, what are we doing that might be contributing this um, emotional unwellness or even suicidal despair? If we look at, um, a lot of health and safety models for workplaces so a lot of industries like construction first responders healthcare, etc they've been looking at safety as a as a very high level value for a long time they of course if you have safe working conditions you have happier employees you have less disruption like all kinds of good things happen when your employees are safe so in focusing on that they have learned that the best bet to keep workers safe is to actually minimize as much as possible any potential hazards they might encounter, right? So have secure ladders and make sure people aren't slipping and falling and making sure like the environment itself is safe. At the the lower end of impact is making sure every single employee has um, their own tools of self-care around their safety. So the same thing goes here. You know, we can empower individuals to build resilient skills and emotional coping strategies and go to therapy when needed um, and have even have conversations with one another that's supportive. All that's amazingly great. But we're going to get a much bigger outcome if we address the environmental hazards that are also contributing to this. So um, that's, that's the argument that we're putting forward. Yes, continue with all your mental health programming, awareness, resources, and, and access to help. And also, you know, do what you can to, to be mindful of the fact that some of the things that happen at work are problematic. So are there other... other mm-hmm. little, little, little. <laughs>
0: Got interested. Um, are there any specific processes, for example, that really contribute to um, sort of issues? Is it a cultural thing or is it a process thing? So, for example, yep. I the research that we've carried out around feelings of hopelessness, hopelessness and desperation at work always focus around two areas. One which is time spent in meetings, bizarrely enough, which is the least productive and most hopeless time of the, year, of the week. And also mm. this sense of rust rather than stress, which is doing work, which has no meaning.
1: Mm-hmm. And, Ooh, um, I, I have heard and, that term before. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it's that. And actually it, 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 triggers the sort of, it triggers the sort of cortisol response, but it actually comes from boredom and meaningless work, pointless, pointless work. And often sitting in meetings is that same thing where most people sitting in the meeting are very, very depressed and the, and the person who's having a great time is the person who's running it. and and i and i see those two and i see those two two sort of fundamental processes even even worse than performance management which i think in 93 percent of cases has no effect on actual performance those sort of three areas are the, the three obvious processes to me which get in the way of a productivity but also lead to feelings of hopelessness so have you spotted from your research other areas or would you reinforce those areas we've found
1: Oh, I would absolutely reinforce those areas. I think those are definitely contributors. Um, you know, I've heard it also described as the grind. Uh, I guess rust is slightly differently, where it's just pointless. The grind is like I know I'm, I have to do this thing to keep the thing going, but I don't love it anymore, and I'm, I'm handcuffed to it yeah. because I have built my identity and my lifestyle around this particular work, and I see no way out. And that feeling of being trapped is another is another um, area. I definitely see this in the area of the construction industry where people um, can make a really decent living, but it's also super um, fluctuating with the economy. So they, you know, they're able to buy a house and a car um, and have a, have a dream of being secure financially. And then poof, it, it goes away and they find they have to now work overtime and several jobs. And, you know, they're 40, 50 years old and, it hurts and it's hard, and they're tired, but they can't escape it. Um, so, in terms of of what to do, uh, some things are are part of the nature of the beast. I mean, con- construction on the labor side is going to be hard and it's going to hurt <laughs> for a lot of people. So, how do you how do you help workers feel valued um, and and transition maybe some of their roles to some other places where they can contribute to the mission and yet maybe not be so dependent on some of the other things that came easier when they were in their 20s. Some of it is about leadership really driving the culture of transparency and openness around workers' stressors, uh, which is hard. You know, it's hard when your company is transitioning either through a merger or it's growing rapidly or it's declining um, and leaders have to manage that transparent conversation so that work workers have high levels of trust. Otherwise then you get, you know, people throwing darts from the corner. Nobody trusts anybody anymore. And there's a lot of sabotage and other kinds of things that happen uh, when people don't feel emotionally safe at work. So uh, in companies where we're working on this, go go ahead. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sure. Just to leap in for a second, because what we also have to be very careful about here is not infant, creating a sort of an infantile structure at work or culture work where, where you can't have honest conversations with people. Cause sometimes the best way to maximize someone's potential is to, is to challenge them and to, and to um, find areas of opportunity and uh, work and challenge where, you know, they don't see themselves necessarily as going, but you know, I, I talk to many people, talk to managers who, you know, advocate throwing people in the deep end i'm not saying that you should do that but we do have to be able to not treat people to such a as children i suppose
1: oh no this is such an important point and i think this is sometimes where this conversation gets off track oh do we have to make it cushy and easy and and bend to every whim of an employee absolutely not in fact the employees won't be happy if you do that (laughs) they won't be um you know work is about being challenged. It's about stretching yourself and learning and growing and, and, and solving problems and you know that's, why, that's where work is satisfying. So um, I'm working with a company right now, they're undergoing a lot of growth and as part of that scalability effort, they've, ha- they've had to automate a number of their processes. And that transition has led to a lot of despair because these are very, very smart people and their emotional well-being is incredibly tied to their intellectual wellness. Yeah. I wanna be challenged. Give me the hardest problem you got out there. I can solve it, you know? And now they're like, what am I doing here? Like, why do I stay? I'm not needed. This isn't challenging. In fact, yeah. everything that I thought I was adding value to, they're, they're telling me I'm no longer relevant. Mm. Um, so very good point.
0: And and I think. You, you, you see the rise of this concept of emotional security or I think Google call it psychological safety, don't they? Mm. And, um, and I do work with organizations. Actually, I worked with one last year who, who basically um, has actually created a culture where if a manager says anything that might hurt a, a member of staff's feelings, they're not allowed to say it. And so now we have the situation where managers can't say anything Um, staff aren't challenged and of course now they're very miserable and unhappy because actually there's no potential so you know not having a robust professional adult culture actually creates or potentially creates the very um the very effect that you're trying to avoid
1: Mm -hmm, absolutely and i absolutely believe there's ways to deliver constructive criticism that Help people grow. I mean, that's that is how we grow. We get feedback from the world. Hey, that was really super, but let's how about how about we nudge it this way? I think we could have more impact if we nudged it this way, or if you if we maybe got you up to speed on this particular skill or whatever. There's ways to communicate it where we're investing in your growth, and that's, rather than rather and that's, than you're a bad person. <laughs>
0: that and, and and that's that seems to be key, doesn't it, Sally? Mm-hmm. You're the it's that you're the bad person thing because. Because actually, you know, when we think about resilience, one of the things we have to learn from resilience is the concept of bouncing back, which means you've made a mistake, you've done something that hasn't worked. You have to, as a human being, learn from your triumphs, but also you have to learn from the things that don't go well as well. That's accountability, that's learning, that's growth, that's the very foundation of human potential.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And, and there, you know, there does come a time where some difficult conversations do need to be had for, again, everybody's benefit. Um, I work with a, a retired judge, Mary McClatchy, and her expertise in law was really around mental health and human resources. And so from the bench, she saw time and time again, how this played out in workplaces, and everybody loses, you know, so there's somebody who's struggling, you know, maybe they're going through a divorce, maybe they have an addiction, maybe they're experiencing depression, Um, their performance starts to slide. And the managers, all they have at their disposal is a performance management tool, which, you know, if you've ever been a part of it, as I have, it's terrible. It feels horrible. Every decision you are making is micromanaged, you feel scrutinized, and it drives a wedge in the relationship with the person who's, you know, supposedly trying to get you back on track. And that usually, if, it, if there's you know, no opportunity for accommodation or even a conversation of like, are you okay? Then that resentment grows and grows and grows and grows. And should there need to be a leave of some kind? There's no, there's no trust on either side that it's going to work out. And she says, that's the point where we often see litigation is the employee is so desperate and so marginalized and so rejected and so angry And she says, We don't have to go down that route. We can have a very different pathway that can work well for everybody. She says, You know, when you see an employee's performance decline, that usually does not happen out of nowhere. Usually there's something going on. So rather than immediately smacking on the performance evaluation, you can say something like, You know what? You're not acting like yourself. And we really value you here. You're part of our family. And sometimes when people, are not acting like themselves, they've got something else going on. I don't need to know the specifics if that's true for you, but I'm here to tell you, if there's something else going on, I got your back. I We have resources. I can help tweak your job a little bit if that's gonna be helpful to get you through. Um, we'll fight with you to get you through it. And we have ideas on how to make that possible. And that kind of conversation um, creates an opportunity for someone to disclose safely and, Get the things they need to get back on track again. It builds that trust between the employer and the employee that you know usually results in a much better outcome. And I'm really, yeah, it,
0: I'm really yeah. sorry to cut across you again. We've yeah. got a poor, poor connection because I'm I'm in a place where I can't see you so well as we know. Um, but I'm so pleased you're saying that because actually throwing the re- the accountability for good leadership management back onto leaders and managers of businesses is the key. And I think what's often happened is that. Leaders and managers have become unskilled because HR have attempted to carry the load. They've focused on the the well-being aspects rather than the performance aspects. And and they've and they've sort of created this culture where it's become impossible. It's become very obvious that leaders and managers know what they can't do, but they have very little idea anymore of what they can do to actually say to people, mm. this is how I construct a solution with you with you.
1: Oh, this is a really important point Uh, because their list is all about, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. They go into these conversations scared. Exactly. And when you are afraid, you withdraw, you shut down, you self-protect, right? You go to self-protection mode, which is antithetical to what an employee often needs. They want connection. They want empathy. They want to be understood. They want a partnership, um, so that's a setup for the managers and, and HR folks that, you know, are, 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 trying to do the right thing by the company, but they don't have the skills and tool sets of a productive way forward. All they know is like, if you step over here, it's a mine. If you step over there, it's a mine. So they, they freeze up or they run away or they shut it down. Yeah. Um, so that's a really important point also.
0: I think, I think we've, we've, we've,
1: We've created a mindset
0: recently, haven't we? Where everything's become a mental health issue, for everything mm. from bipolar through to low mood, and no. And I think we've actually robbed operational managers of the ability just to be themselves and to and to do that thing where you have you sit down, and have a conversation either in the canteen or in the having a walk around the car park, and just say, "Look, tell me what's going on. Let's fix this together."
1: Mm, exactly.
0: You know, you know, because actually, if you don't. It's just, it's just what normal human beings do. And, right. uh, and I think actually we've sort of over-legalized or um, over-HR'd the whole process to the point where, I mean, often what I'm talking about is this concept of tough love, because, and I know people don't like the word, but the, the point is about creating an adult environment where people can say what needs to be said, but mm-hmm. actually in a way that's conducive <laughs> to you know, caring enough to have the conversation in the first place. That's the point of tough love, isn't it? The point is mm-hmm. bothered enough in the first place to actually have the have the difficult conversations. Yeah. And, I, and I find people so terrified of having conversations that right. actually it's becoming bullying, but almost almost by by um, by re, by almost by being gaslit rather than rather than being directly bullied. So the physical violence has been, been removed, and actually, what you've got now is the absence of anything at all. Mm-hmm. so you know what what do you do you fill in the you fill in the um, you fill in the gaps for yourself
1: right and i i know uh mary mcclatchy judge mary mcclatchy would would support me in, in saying this that you know you do your best to give people a pathway through whatever they're going through and you also have to uphold the standards and the mission of the organization and Just as if they maybe threw out their back and their job was to carry, you know, 50 pound loads everywhere, you try to get them healed. But if at some point they can't do the job, you've got to find someone else to fill that role. Now, the compassionate thing to do is say, you know what? We still value you. You're still part of our family. We're going to find another place for you. Uh, We're going to find, you know, we're going to help you transition here um, so that the person's not feeling, you know, kicked to the curb. But that's the reality of work. You you have to have somebody who can fill the role, the, the expectation. Job. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's right. And I, th- and I think what's interesting is that um, you know when I talk to leaders and managers about this, it's the same problem with the mental health issue. You're saying that's what I
1: mean. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Addition. You're saying mm-hmm. basically
0: you've got a you've got an issue with depression or burnout, whatever it, it is. You know, let's let's sit down and figure that out as if it were a broken leg, as right. if it were a bad back, because then because actually the solutions are the same, you know, what is it you need? Tell me, tell me what, what I can do to help. And it's that classic thing is if you need a bit of slack, you know, if you need to cut some slack with someone to get a high performer back performing again, you know, in a few months time, then then actually you, it's sort of common sense, but that does reach a point sometimes where you say, well, actually, this has gone beyond the, gone beyond the point. And, and either you find something else or you have to part company, but You know, if what you're saying is right, which is actually the organization itself is part of the problem, then sometimes leaving the organization can be part of the
1: solution. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, so my my meta mantra to workplaces is whatever your policies are, whatever your practices are for illness or injury, start there. However you treat that, how you think about mental health stuff, you, you start there, you'll probably be in a good spot. And and similarly, so part of the the workplace guidelines is about preventing these things from happening in the first place, which is about removing the hazards and changing culture and having leadership drive a community of care. Um, Midstream is about how we catch it early through self-screening and um, empowering conversations and triaging to different resources. And then downstream is when we have crises, when people are in in a really bad place or when we have a suicide death. So similarly, on the what we call postvention, the aftermath of a suicide death, you know, workplaces often don't know what to do. They don't know where to start to support their the surviving employees or how to respond to that kind of tragedy. And I always say, how do you? What's your crisis protocol look like? How do you respond to other forms of employee death or significant um, significant situation? you know, start there, because if you deviate from what you usually do, it speaks volumes to everybody left behind. Mm. Um, so there's definitely some nuances about privacy and, and things like that. But for the most part, if we can stay on an even keel and make our responses similar, we're, 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 everybody's in a good spot.
0: That's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? i as mm. I mean, I think the, the thing for, for this is also produce a common sense approach. So people aren't disempowered because of the fear of getting it wrong. Exactly. Um, you mentioned that you launched the, um, the policy. Uh, is, is, there some, is that something that people can access online? Maybe think about bringing into their own uh, organizations. Do you have resources that can help people that they could get hold of or contact you in some way? Yeah. Should...
1: Absolutely. So the, the national guidelines for workplace suicide prevention, is a partnership initiative that was pulled together by three major organizations in the United States. One is the American Association of Suicidology. Another is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And the third is United Suicide Survivors International. And we took several years to to pull these together. So we're very excited to now be sharing uh, the initial steps around this. And you can find these resources at workplacesuicideprevention.com. Workplace suicide prevention.com. Um, and basically what it um what it's intending to do is walk employers and professional associations um, like unions and other types of you know um professional organization kinds of groups through a process of onboarding nine practices. So the, the first step is really moving from awareness to action and making a pledge okay we've got to get this issue on people's radar um, and once it's on the radar you got to step into the arena and say all right i pledge that our organization will make suicide prevention a health and safety priority and that in and of itself is pretty profound because this has not historically been a workplace issue ever (laughs) Um, so to say that out loud And put your logo on it and share the badge that you are making this pledge is is important. Um, then we have people kind of register and enroll into a community of practice. And so they can now get to share uh, you know more privately with other organizations that are wrestling with policy and, and rollout and all these other things and kind of learn from one another by industry or by region. We really encourage all groups that are moving in this direction, to do a fairly robust needs and strengths assessment before they make any changes. And by that, I mean, listen to your people, you know, do focus groups, in-depth interviews, surveys, whatever it takes, spend time listening first before you, what often feels to employees, you know, you jam the the program of the month down their throats, (laughs) listen to them because the, the drivers of despair, the barriers to help, they are, they are variable. They, they are not all the same in all the different places. And the programming that you do or the policies that you roll out moving forward will go much better if the employees felt like you heard them first. Yes. Um, and then we roll, them, we roll people through a, a series of nine practices. There's three that are upstream that focus on building buffers and protective factors and driving culture. There's three practices that are midstream that help people either self-identify or reach out to coworkers um, with compassion and empathy and dignity uh, early on in the process before things could become catastrophic. And then there's three practices that are about addressing the crisis.
0: And if you can hear me clicking, it's because I'm actually on your site at the moment.
1: Oh, (laughs) 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 yes. So, So we just launched. So we're in the baby, baby, baby steps of building this. And we really do see it being, um, and evolution as more workplaces, more industries, uh, different geographies, different ty- different cultures start to lean into this, you know things are going to get shaped and so forth, so that community of practice piece is really important to how this evolves so we 're at the stage now where people can you know take the pledge and once they enroll and, and register into the process, then they get the keys to kind of what we call the next layer of content where we're moving people through a dashboard of these practices. Mm. And I love, and we're, I we're love that. We're evaluating the heck out of this along the way too, because I'm pretty sure just like any major change process, we're going to be some, there's going to be some course correcting along the way as we try to figure out how best to serve yeah. um, employers who really wanted to do the right thing.
0: And I love that. And I love the point that you've got something around resilience in your, um, your toolkit as well. That sh- that oh, Absolutely close to my own heart and uh, um, um, I'm just looking at the time and I I, I could chat to you all day again and that's how we ended up with the second podcast um, I love the idea of the stream parable as well so so the website again was workplacesuicideprevention.com and um, I think if you're an organization it's definitely worth having a look at that And, um, and I know we're in the UK and you're in the US but actually I can't see anything on there that wouldn't be applicable to us over here as well Oh,
1: that was part of our uh, initial drive as well. We wanted to look internationally about, you know, where the common denominators and how can we continue to learn from each other? Because I I do feel the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you're you're a little ahead of us. Um, So we're learning from you.
0: Yeah. Well, if only that were true. But um, (laughs) (laughs) Sally, again, that's been a fantastic session. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, um, Thank you. People can get I, hold of you as well by going to Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas or the um, the Workplace uh, Suicide Prevention site. Yeah, well. the,
1: the Workplace site is a collaborative project among many, many people. So if people want to reach out to me directly, it's awesome. Um, I'm a, a speaker, trainer, consultant. Uh, most of my time is spent in workplace suicide prevention, but I also do trainings for mental health professionals and colleges and universities and communities and so forth. Um, and I would love to, chat with you if this is a passion area of uh of your interest as well
0: you're a star thank you
1: so much (laughs) thank you Russell take care
0: take care as well bye thanks for listening today you can go to our site qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love leadership accountability resilience and burnout you can go to our site qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience. Until the next episode, keep on thriving.